Welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. The cost of battery electric storage technology is falling rapidly, creating opportunity for batteries to play a growing role in the nation's electricity system and in the reduction of the grid's carbon footprint. Last year, the regulator of the nation's electricity markets, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, acknowledged the growing potential of storage when it established guidelines for batteries to fully and profitably take part in the nation's electricity markets. A year later, however, a number of legal and regulatory challenges have emerged that could slow the growth of battery storage and make it harder for the technology to achieve the economies of scale it will need to compete with traditional sources of electric power. On today's podcast, an expert in energy law will take a look at the role of regulation in defining the future of energy storage and its ability to serve as a complement to carbon-free energy, notably wind and solar power. Ken Kulik is a partner at the law firm Morgan Lewis, where he focuses on energy regulation and complex energy transactions. He is also a senior fellow here at the Climate Center for Energy Policy. Ken, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to be back. So, Ken, there are a number of types of energy storage technologies being used in the electricity industry. Battery storage has gotten the most of attention or most attention of late. Briefly, what are the ways that battery storage can be used and why the recent excitement? Well, when we look at energy storage, it's really important to remember that right now, energy storage is extremely limited on the grid. The grid operates as a giant machine where the energy that is being consumed has to be balanced with the amount of energy that's being put onto the grid. And just to give you a sense of the scale, the United States has a little over 1,000 gigawatts of energy capacity, a million megawatts of capacity. Of those 1,000 gigawatts, only about 22 are pumped storage, where a utility will use energy to pump water up a reservoir and then let it down and to drive a turbine when power is cheap. When we get to battery storage, we've got a little over a gigawatt that's actually installed in the country. So there's a very small amount. But the excitement comes from the fact that with energy storage, this may be a fundamental change to the economics of the grid, where we don't have to balance generation and load or consumption in quite the same way. The most straightforward examples are the ability to store energy during the day that you can use later at night from a solar energy facility, for example, or wind energy that is often generated more at night in different parts of the country for later use during the day. These possibilities are converging now because of significant drops in the cost of storage. Per Bloomberg, the cost of electricity from lithium-ion batteries, which is the most popular sort of battery storage coming onto the grid right now, have fallen 76% from 2012. And we figured out how to effectively deploy storage in real-world settings, discovering how there's real value not only in time-shifting energy, using it when we don't have it necessarily available from a renewable resource, but also in using the energy storage to perform different functions on the grid to help balance out energy needs for very short periods of time, what we are sometimes referred to as the ancillary markets of the grid. Now, when you combine those cost savings and real-world deployments with the increasing concern in many areas of the country regarding the effects of climate change on reliability and resiliency of the electric grid generally, this excitement really is understandable. So, Ken, so battery storage has a lot of potential, yet very little currently exists. Can you tell us a little bit more why that is and why it's picking up right now? Sure. The lower costs that I referred to 
does not mean it's free. And those cost drops have happened over a relatively short period of time. Though they're dramatic, when you look at the energy infrastructure, we're talking about decades of plant and investment. You know, we're relying now on power plants built decades ago. And so it takes a while as new technologies come to the fore, whether it's gas or nuclear in its time or new nuclear, as we now are looking at in some markets, those technologies take a while to actually come onto the grid. And same as with solar, with wind, storage is one of those. It is worth noting that the cost for storage seem to be dropping even more precipitously than we have seen with the solar and wind price drops over the last several years. It's also a question of how best to use the technology. Storage is not an infinite resource. It's not this infinitely sized swimming pool of energy. It's more like the image we use as a wine bottle. You have to decide when you're going to fill that wine bottle, when you're going to take the wine out of the bottle. The wine bottle only has a certain amount of size for how much you can keep in there of the energy. Those questions of charging, discharging, relate to the economics of the electricity markets that that storage resource is located in. So you may not know, just as you know, don't know what the price or what the interest rates are gonna be next quarter, you don't know what the price of electricity may be six hours from now in a real-time energy market. So those are challenging issues that have to be solved as we deploy storage, depending upon the storage application that we're looking to use. And just for example, much of the most popular storage that's being deployed now is of duration for about four hours. So that may or may not be ideal for what may be happening at in electric markets at that particular time. In addition, we're still figuring out what the rules of the road are. So not only do you have cost, you have the technology costs and how to figure out how to best operate those efficiently, economically and efficiently. You also have the rules that are going to govern those activities. And we're, again, just at the beginning of what those rules are looking like. You alluded to the actions of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. There's a number of states who are getting pilot projects out there, encouraging their utilities or requiring their utilities to deploy energy storage. All those factors are coming together that make the future look very interesting, but they have to converge. And that's really why you don't see a lot of storage on the, on the grid right now. But again, it's happening very quickly and we're starting to see really rapid deployments. Just in the last uh, year, actually between 27 and 20, 2017 and 2018, we saw about a 45% increase in the number of megawatt hours available on the grid. And in the residential section where people are now adding batteries to their home systems, we saw about a 500% increase. So we're starting from a very small place, but the rapidity of the increase is notable. Are we reaching at this point a certain uh, price or cost threshold for that storage that's allowing this to happen right now? Well, as I said before, per Bloomberg, the price has declined about 76% since 2012. And one of the other ways that we kind of look at these prices is we compare them um, using something called a levelized cost of energy or LCOE. And that's a way of kind of controlling for the different variations for the investment needed for a particular source of energy. So again, per Bloomberg, in 2019, lithium-ion battery storage has an estimated levelized cost of about $187 per megawatt hour. That's a megawatt of power delivered over an hour. And that's in comparison 
comparison to onshore wind, which is around 50, or onshore solar, which is around $57. But what's really interesting to a lot of people looking at this market right now is what happens when you combine storage with other technologies. Mm. If you have a plant that's solar plus storage or a wind facility that's wind plus storage, you are possibly going to be able to use that resource at different times and in different ways and you might otherwise be able to if that storage capability was not there. And that is seeing or what we're seeing in the result in the number of procurements is even lower prices. People have seen, for example, um, you know, $36 per megawatt hour range for a solar plus storage facility. So we're seeing like this $6 or $7 delta. Again, that's a Bloomberg statistic with respect to adding storage. And that at that level, that gets very attractive to project developers. You know, I want to take a step back, just talk about these rules. And, the, and you mentioned that the rules and the, the FERC is working on uh, pushing new rules to allow storage to participate uh, in these markets. The rules are so important here because fundamentally storage is a very different resource. And the rules that have basically guided the participation of coal, nuclear, wind, solar, whatever you have up until this point, don't quite apply to batteries. So that's why these rules have to be updated, and that's why it's so important. Um, and, and along those lines, recognizing the economic and technological emergence of batteries, the FERC, which is the federal regulator, uh, issued guidelines, as you mentioned, in 2018, aimed at making it possible for storage to participate in the wholesale electricity markets. How did the ruling called Order 841 propose to open electricity markets up to storage? Well, again, the part of the nature of the electric markets in the United States is that they're divided. There's different markets around the country. About half of the country is in regional transmission organizations in which the there's an entity that controls the wholesale markets of energy and also the transmission that are operating there. And they have different rules in different places. So FERC asked those entities to come forward with their plan for integrating storage. And as you suggested, storage is a little different than the other types of generation that have historically been providing power. And again, going back to that wine bottle, there's no, you're not typically charging a coal plant. You're not charging a nuclear plant. So it, storage isn't always generation, and sometimes it looks like any other customer. But how that then participates in a market that was primarily designed for wholesale generation is the question that FERC was wrestling with. Well, batteries, as you just said, can be a customer buying electricity to charge up and then also a seller, right? Right. And whether the price should be the same for a normal customer or a battery storage entity because it's participating in the market is one of those questions that FERC looks at. Overall, the charge to, that FERC gave to the regional transmission organizations was come up with a participation model that respects the nature of storage. So you have to have rules that fit the technology. That's not a radical idea, and but what those rules may be is, of course, the question that the different RTOs are wrestling with. And in particular, also recognizing that there's different markets that those entities control. There's the market for energy. There's the market for capacity, the energy we'll need in the future. There's ancillary services, those sort of balancing needs that you know, every second have to be met. So 
whether storage works in all those markets, how storage works in all those markets are part of the questions that the RTOs have been wrestling with in light of Order 841. And of course, 841 has continued. There was subsequent litigation around the original, the, the commission's original order. The commission considered some issues on rehearing and ruled on those rehearing motions. And now we're waiting for the commission's ruling on the pending plans. So there are a handful of wholesale electricity markets in the U.S., each of which encompasses tens of millions of electricity customers. Uh, those markets submitted their compliance plans for Order 841 uh, earlier this year, but the agency has not yet ruled on those filings, whether those plans can go forward. Tell us what's going on there, and specifically I'm interested as well in what's happening with PJM Interconnection, which is the largest of those markets that actually runs the market here where we are in Philadelphia. Well, it's interesting that we're doing this podcast this week because just a few days ago, FERC published its agenda for its meeting later this week and the plan for PJM and another uh, one of those RTOs, the Southwest Power Pool, are on the agenda this week. So we're likely to see FERC's rulings on these compliance plans, at least two of them, uh, in the very near future. Now, um, in, with respect to PJM, PJM has gotten a, some attention uh, in this particular uh, area because PJM has proposed a 10-hour rule duration rule for energy storage resources. You have to be able to deliver power for this particular period. And that length of time has been an issue of contention among the community because certain storage developers and, and project owners – are focused on four-hour duration, and they say there's a lot of value there that just a four-hour duration system can deliver. So PJM's requirement is too long. And PJM says, look, we look at our peaking day, we look at the other resources that we are available, and we think 10 hours is what we need to meet our obligations to operate the grid in a safe and reliable manner. So that issue is teed up for FERC to decide, and it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. So there's another thorny issue, which is now being fought over in the courts. And the question is whether FERC has the regulatory power to open electricity markets to energy storage that are on local power grids, which are called distribution networks. Can you please explain what the situation is there? Yes. One of the particularly interesting parts of working on issues before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission is that we're dealing with a statutory framework with laws that were really created in the 1930s to begin to figure out how the emerging energy markets at that time should work between the states and what the appropriate role of the federal government was and the role of the states. The Federal Power Act, as it is known, allocated a certain jurisdictional split between the states and the federal government. So FERC has jurisdiction over wholesale sales of electricity, but the states have jurisdiction over retail sales of electricity. And every now and then we revisit this jurisdictional line between the federal government and the states. And most recently, the Supreme Court had not one but two decisions in 2016 that examined this particular line. One of those decisions involved whether resources that are on a customer's property behind the meter 
could participate in wholesale markets that are managed by FERC. Those are demand response uh, resources, which are sometimes used to reduce load at a particular time. That serves a grid's purpose. And the Supreme Court agreed with FERC that those entities participating and offering demand response resources could be compensated by the wholesale markets that were operated under the jurisdiction of FERC. Storage brings us back to that question. If you are at home or at a corporate location and you have a battery on your property, who gets to set the rules for the participation of that battery in the wholesale markets? Or if you are just simply, in FERC speak, connected to the distribution system that is historically regulated by the states, what's the way in which that storage entity on the distribution grid can participate in the wholesale markets. So re remember, going back to Order 841, FERC told the RTOs, we want to see a participation model that allows storage to participate consistent with what it can do in these markets. Now, when you get to the distribution grid that is historically regulated by the states, the extent to which those storage resources interconnected to the distribution grid can participate in the wholesale markets regulated by FERC is very much a question here. And of course, states are concerned about their jurisdictional powers. FERC is looking at the 2016 decisions and say, look, the Federal Power Act allows us to deal with behind the meter resources. Storage is one of those, so we get to be able to write the rules. And so this question, uh, whether and how energy storage resources can participate in the grid when they're interconnected to the distribution system is very much at issue. It's still being litigated on appeal now of FERC's order, and it is also being considered by state juris jurisdiction entities, public utility commissions, and of course developers who are looking at these different markets and deciding where they want to play. Obviously, all this uncertainty might make investors think twice about investing in battery storage infrastructure projects. How will regulation impact the willingness of investors to back storage going forward? Well, frankly, we're seeing a lot of investment interest in this space. I think I might even say that there's a lot more investment interest than there are <laughs> storage companies and storage projects uh, for, for that capital that's looking for a safe and secure home. I mean, the way we talk about investment in this space is investors like in other sectors, want both a return of and a return on their investment. And the stability of the rules is really fundamental to that. But again, because it's the energy markets, there's lots of different players here. So as I said earlier, the states are putting requirements onto utilities to build storage and procure storage. So those states are entering into contracts with storage developers for those resources. Those are contracts that are going to be enforceable. There's going to be a rate that's paid for that resource participating in one way or another at the distribution grid, typically if it's a utility. Those state procurements and, con and associated contracts with the utility can give a lot of comfort to investors who are looking to be in this space. And in fact, we also see a lot of incentives that states are developing, in particular California, where there are financial incentives that are linked to storage projects. And so those bring down the costs and provide additional security with respect to 
the investment itself. So let me ask you a final question here, if I may. So we're talking about, obviously, states have been very supportive of, of storage and increasingly so. Um, some, so. Some states. Some states. Some states, yes. So how will these the outcome of this federal situation, to what extent will that impact investment as well? It's really hard to predict. I think one of the things that we think of when we look at this federal state balance is renewable portfolio standards. You know, there is not a national renewable portfolio standard requiring utilities nationwide to have a certain amount of renewable energy as part of their energy mix. But there are renewable portfolio standards in 29 states plus the District of Columbia. And so those state initiatives have driven a lot of the renewable energy development that you see in this country. So this interaction between the federal and state lines is one that's constantly revisited, as I said. So even if the federal government, if FERC does one thing with respect to the storage markets, some states may do another, and we'll just have to see how this plays out. But I do think that certainly FERC's interest is in trying to have more storage on the market and I th- on, in the market. And I think there's a lot of alignment between that and the utilities. The, questioning is, the question is figuring out the rules of the road that we're all going to live with. Well, hopefully we'll get that guidance from the FERC this Thursday, October the 17th. Ken, thanks for talking. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. Today's guest has been Ken Kulik, a senior fellow with the Climate Center for Energy Policy and partner at the law firm of Morgan Lewis. For more energy policy research and insights, visit the Climate Center's website. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And keep up with news from the center and industry by subscribing to our Twitter feed, at Climate Energy. Thanks for listening to the podcast, and have a great day.